Today's scripture reading is going to be out of Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15 through 64 and verse 4. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We're going to have a little bit of different time in the word today. Um, It's going to be uh, less of a a sermon and more of what we'll call a meditation. And I think that's fitting for here two days after Christmas and uh, just getting ready to go into the new year, a time for us, uh, whether you're here or at home uh, you know, you might be thinking about, you know, this sort of this afterglow after Christmas and heading into this coming week. You might be thinking about uh, New Year and New Year's resolutions and what is your focus going to be this year personally and family. And or maybe you're thinking about how, you know, just like a minute last year's resolutions lasted and are you going to try them again this year? It's sort of a, a natural break. Uh, in the year, in the, the calendar, in our schedule. This is usually for a lot of people one of the lower, uh, uh, less busy times of the year. And I think it's a good time for us to sort of reset and uh, think about what this coming year holds. Think about this past year and what uh, God has done, what has, what has or has not happened, kind of where we are uh, personally and corporately. And uh, that's really where I think I want us to to land today as we meditate on this passage, um, we're just gonna kind of work through it, is I want us to kind of uh, think about, there's a, there'll be personal application for you. There'll be a lot of personal application in here for you as you think about this passage. Um, but what I really want us to think about is as a church and as the church, as the American church, uh, what, what this passage, how this applies to us today. Um, the reason I say it's a meditation and not a sermon is a sermon has a, a starting point and an ending point. It has a, a thrust of the passage that we're trying to feature, that we're trying to show each other, show out of the word what the thrust of this passage is. And, and, and a meditation is a little bit different in that the ser- a sermon kind of has a start and an ending point. It's something that happens in a moment. But uh, this word meditation, the, particularly the Jewish word for meditation, means to sort of like, is the picture of kind of ruminating. It's not emptying our brains. 
It is filling our brains with God's word and letting it ruminate and, and roll around in there. Uh, a helpful picture that I've heard over and over again, and this is a guy who comes from the country but understands very little bit about, very little about livestock, is that uh, cows have four distinct uh, compartments in their stomach. If this is incorrect, don't tell me now. Tell me afterwards, and I'll try to correct it in an amendment. But we'll just go with this. This is, you know, off the internet, so therefore it must be true. A cow has four distinct parts of its stomach, and and what it does is it, as the cow's out grazing in the field, it'll it'll you know eat the grass, it'll chew it, and it kind of just barely kind of chews the grass before it swallows it into its stomach. And the, what it does in this first compartment of its stomach is and I don't know what order it goes in or how this happens, so you know you can Google it and get as much information as I have at this moment or more information, but it, it, it takes this, uh, this grass, it barely chews, it puts in this first compartment of the stomach and it kind of ferments there in its stomach. And then what happens is it gets to a particular point, this is kind of gross, but this is what happens, is it, it comes back up into the cow's mouth and the cow chews it more. It's called chewing the cud. The cow breaks it down further and then re-swallows it to go back to its stomach to, to further digest. It's what a, a healthy cow happens. What happens to a healthy cow is eating grass. And that's the picture of meditation that scripture kind of paints for us is that, is that we don't just read over a passage like this and just move on. But if this passage does really apply to us personally and us corporately as our church, as Doxa Church and us corporately as the American church, then it's something that's important enough for us to start, start to meditate on today. It's our prayer for the new year is what I hope it will be. I hope it will become your prayer for the new year for our church and for the church even if you're here visiting and you're not a part of our church or you're watching online, you're not a part of our church, it'd be something that I think that would help be helpful for us to meditate on and ruminate over and be, until it becomes our prayer for the church for the new year. I hope this becomes our prayer for our church and the church for the new year. It's Isaiah 63, 15 through 64, 5. What's interesting about this prayer, as we're getting ready to get into it, is uh, Isaiah is a fascinating book. It's an amazing book. It's a long book, and it's a complicated book in the Old Testament. It's, and it, it has all these different prophecies or collections of prophecies and prayers from the prophet Isaiah. And it's interesting in that a number of the things that he's praying about or prophesying about are happening at his time or in the near future at his time hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago from us now. A long time ago, he's praying about things that would happen at, happening at that time or the near future of his time. But also, some of the things that he prays about and prophesies about are actually far in the future, actually pointing in the, even in our future towards the very end of the age before Christ returns. And so it's interesting that sort of as we try to figure out what are these, what are these prayers, what do these prophecies lie in terms of, or do they apply to Isaiah's time, and what do we take from that? Are they in the future even ahead of our time and how do we, what do we take from that? But this prayer is interesting in that the, the, common, the commentaries and the theologians, they aren't sure exactly what time this prayer is pointing to. And I think it has actually a purpose. They can't locate like exactly what was going on. When, when, when was this prayer given and what is it about? And I think there's a purpose because it applies to a lot of periods of time for Christians and for God's people, as you'll see. It addresses a common problem for God's people. It's a prayer, first of all, a prayer of lament. 
A lament is whenever you go and it's sort of like a complaint before God. You could also call this a prayer of complaint. It's a prayer of mourning and lament. Say, God, look at where we are. You can pray a prayer of lament about your own life. God, look at where I am. You can pray a prayer of lament for a, for a particular church. God, look at where we are here today. You can pray a prayer of lament over the church of a whole country or across the world or for a particular nation. It's a prayer of lament or complaint, but it's also a prayer of desperation, as we'll see. And I think that's really when a prayer like this, a prayer of lament and a prayer of complaint, really takes on true meaning and true powers when it becomes a prayer of desperation. You guys know the, the difference in prayer, right? There's the perfunctory prayer that we pray before a meal or we pray at the beginning of a service or pray before a normal small group meeting at somebody's house or before you meet with somebody or before you go to sleep at night or on your way to work or that, that, mere, that point in time where you have the, the prayer that you know that you need to pray and that's a good prayer to pray, a perfunctory prayer. I should probably never be truly perfunctory, but a prayer out of like, I know that I need to pray. I need to communicate with God and I'm going to do that right now. And then there's a diff different kind of prayer. It's a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer that comes out of the deep depth of your soul. Whenever you know, God, I am in trouble. And you cry out to God with a, a sense of desperation, a lament, a complaint before God. God, you see where I am. It's the prayer beside a bedside of someone who is desperately ill. It's the prayer whenever you've gotten some terrible news. It's the prayer whenever you're at your breaking point. It's the prayer that you pray whenever your spouse tells you, I don't love you anymore, or your child says, I don't believe in God anymore. It's the prayer that you, of desperation that you pray whenever you are, have come to the end of your rope and you have nowhere else to turn and no other hope to look to except God, you show up. That's what this kind of prayer is. It's a prayer of desperation, of lament, of complaint. It's a prayer that's saying that, God, something has been lost. Something isn't right here that Isaiah is praying. Whatever was going on at the time, he's saying, God, something isn't right here. Something isn't right with our nation. Something isn't right with your people. Things aren't happening the way they should happen. And he's crying out in desperation. Something has been lost. But what is it? What is it that's been lost? We're going to see that. But that's the question I want you guys to think about as we get into it. Like, what has been lost and what is Isaiah? What is the, 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 the crux, the point, the, the real stirring of his soul that he's asking God to do? Because a prayer like this, us to say, if we're going to say, this is our prayer for a new year. This is our prayer for our church. This is our prayer for our lives. This is our prayer for our country, for the American church. If, if it is only helpful if we are unified in our prayer. A prayer like this is only helpful if we agree. And that's the all great prayers throughout history involve unity. It involves a group of people, sometimes a small group of people. It could be two or three. Sometimes a larger group of people, but it involves a group of people who are in desperation and who together agree on what the problem is and they together pray addressing that problem to the Lord. It's when we agree 
But it's interesting, before we get to this passage, that, that we can all view the same problem and we can diagnose what the problem is differently. And what we diagnose the problem is will, will affect what we think the answer is. What's the solution to the problem? It's sort of like this. It's a situation that Meg and I have found ourselves in before. And actually, not this year, thankfully. Uh, but maybe you guys have found yourself, if you're parents, in this situation. Uh, Christmas Eve, late at night, there's a pile of things that are not wrapped and or assembled. And there's wrapping paper and ribbon in the room. And it's late. And there's a sense at that moment of some complaint and some amount of lament about the situation that you find yourself in. And there could be an argument that erupts between the two people. These are fictional people. I'm not like in, in this room. We're just going to make this like this is a I've heard of this happening in other households. A, a complaint or a lament may arise between these two people as to what the problem is and what the solution of this problem is. One person may say, if we had fewer presents, we wouldn't be in this situation. You buy too many presents. The other person may say, the problem is if you weren't so lazy and you would have responded a week ago when I said we need to start wrapping presents, we wouldn't be in this situation today. Someone else may say, the problem is that you want these presents wrapped too perfectly. If we could go faster and not put the bows on and make them pretty, we could be done. And someone else may say, well, the problem is we shouldn't wrap them at all. Whenever I woke up in the morning, Christmas, my presents were just laid out without any wrapping on the couch and the kids would just walk in and they're going to be happy whether they're wrapped or not. So they're all, there's one problem, right? We're up late at night. We're both tired. We're both cranky. We want to go to sleep. We know the kids are going to be up early in the morning, this fictional couple, by the way. And there's this crux, this, this lament that is going on about what the problem is and we think the, the solution is different because we think the problem was different. But if you take it out of that scenario and you take it to something bigger, if we see, hey, God, there's something wrong in our country, there's something wrong in the American church, and there's something wrong in our church, we can all come up to different solutions of what those problems are. I just read this this morning, uh, the second case that I've read in the past month of an incredibly prominent Christian leader who has fallen, who's come out about this gross immorality and falling away from the Lord. We, I talked to pastor friends of mine across the country and nearby who are dealing with the issue that we're dealing with today, that 50% of churches are at 50% of their pre-COVID numbers or less. And it's not just about COVID sensibilities, though that certainly plays into it. Because it has to do with in-person numbers and online numbers. I think COVID has poked a hole in the cultural Christianity of the South and the cultural Christianity of America. And the answer that we, that we, that we come to, what's the solution to those problems will be, will directly affect what we think the problem is. And we might say, hey, the problem is a political problem. So therefore we need a political answer to the political problem. And I'm here to tell you, the problem with the American church, the problem with our church, the problem with our lives is not a political problem. That is never raised in Scripture. It, never in Scripture do we see the church languishing, God's people languishing, and he said, if you just appointed the correct leader, 
if you just had better laws. Now those might be out, outgrowths. We need better laws, we need better leaders, but he never says, this is the problem. It is always, the problem always lies in the heart of God's people. That's where the problem comes from. The problem in the church and outside of the church, around the church, always comes from a lack of power and the presence of God and God's people, as we're gonna see. Or you might say, hey, the problem is a, cult a cultural problem. We're in the middle of a culture that is very anti-Christian and is turning more and increasingly more anti-Christian, becoming more and more secular, more and more humanistic, and that's the problem. But see, that's never been the problem of God's people. The church has often most thrived when it is surrounded by a culture that is far from God and is anti-Christianity and anti-Bible and anti-God. That's never been the problem. Or is the problem a, a, a methodological problem? If we just had a more charismatic preacher or a better band or a better kids ministry or a better building or better greeters or a more comfortable room or better coffee, but some of those things may make a crowd more likely to gather, but none of those answer the problem that Isaiah is raising in this passage. Let's look at what he says. In verse 15 of Isaiah 64, sorry, Isaiah 63. This is his prayer for mercy. He begins with a lament. He says, look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful or glorious habitation, he starts off by acknowledging God's holiness. He says, you are holy and you are beautiful, or that word there is glorious. Glorious means weighty, it's beauty, it's the, it's the out, outward shining of God's inner nature. Look down from your holy and your beautiful habitation, but he says, look at how he starts it off with, he says, but look down. He says, look down and see. Look down upon us and see the condition that your people are in. You are holy and you are good and you are glorious and you are amazing. But then he says, God, you are holy and you are good and you are glorious. But look at our condition. Look down and see what is going on. Yesterday I was at home and I was, had a lot of different things going on. And there were several times where my son or a, a kid so Eliza would cry out to me in, in their own way and say, God, God, Jesus, sorry, Dad, I'm not any of those things. I'm not Jesus, I'm not God. They say, Dad, look down here and see what is going on with me. I need you to pay attention and see what my problem is. I, I'm struggling with this thing. I've tried to figure it out, Dad, I need you to look down and see what is going on. And that's the cry that Isaiah is praying in his prayer. He says, God, you are holy and you are beautiful. You are glorious. But I'm asking you, look down and see. Not like God doesn't always see everything, but he's saying, God, I need you to, to acknowledge what I am saying. I need you to look down. I'm lamenting. See and consider. Consider the situation that we are in. Look down and see. He says, where are your zeal and your might? God's zeal is that his, which motivates him and, 
and moves him. The, the, the zeal of God is always shown whenever God is determined to do something. He says, God, your zeal has accomplished this. That's a phrase that is used often in scripture. God, your zeal, your desire, your power, that's a combination of his power and his drive and his desire. Your zeal has accomplished this. And he's saying, where is your zeal to accomplish your work through your people here on earth? Where is your zeal? And where is your might? This is the desperate lament and prayer of a prophet who is looking around and he sees God's people doing things. He sees things happening in the temple. He sees God, God's people praying perfunctory prayers, but he says, I don't see in the middle of all this, I don't see God's zeal and God's might accomplishing his purpose by his power. And God uses the work of his church in all our brokenness and all our feeble, he does amazing things all the time. But I wonder if we can look around in our church and across the American church today and really see God moving in according to his zeal and his might in such a way that nobody else can get any credit for it. In the way that no church and no philosophy and no motivated leader and no charismatic speaker can get the credit for it. You know what we say when we see a church that's prospering and growing? We, see, we say, what are they doing over there? Oh, they have a really great preacher, or they have an amazing kids program, or look at their building, or they happen to be in a growing area. Like we, we attribute it easily to things that are going on that people are doing. We know God is working in the middle of that, but is God moving in our midst? Is God moving? Let me ask you this. In your life, through you and through your life in such a way that can only be said this is God's zeal and it's his might that is doing us. He says, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts. That is that the, the God's like, you know, whenever you're, you're worked up, you feel the stirring inside you and your compassion. God, where is your compassion? Where's your zeal? Where's your might? Where's your, where's your stirring? Where's your compassion? They are held back from me, he says. That me is really a corporate me. They're held back from me, but they're held back from us together because he says this. We, this is how we know he's talking collectively. For, he says. He, he's going to turn now from just issuing his lament and his complaint to, to acknowledging who God is in his character. And this is really what motivates him to pray to God because he sees the state that we're in, but then he says, for you are our father. That stands out in this passage because that actually was not a, a, a phrase that was used often in the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites would call themselves children or sons of God, but they would not often call him father, but here, Isaiah points out, he says, for you are our father. This is what's motivating him to actually pray this prayer, to lament and to complain to God. And the same way, that, the same thing that, that causes Eliza or Sophia or Landon to cry out to me, dad, look down and see what is going on with me. Come and help me. You're not helping me, dad. I need you to help me. They, they do that because they know they have a claim on me because I am their father. And that is what Isaiah is doing with God, the father here. He says, you are our father. 
That's what's emboldened me to ask you, where is your zeal and your might? Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. That, we don't know exactly what that means, but it could mean one. It could mean that Abraham wouldn't recognize us if he looked at us. If Abraham and Israel or Jacob came and looked at us and saw the state that we're in, they would not recognize us as God's people. They would not recognize us because they wouldn't recognize in our lives the characteristics of God's people, but they also wouldn't see your zeal and might moving for us the way it moved for them. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, it could also mean that neither, if, neither Abraham nor Israel, who are their, their sort of heroes in their culture because they are people who followed God and obeyed him in ways and and uh, had faith in him in ways that, that really set the standard for God's people. What they're saying is possibly, though Abraham and I, Israel, they can't even help us. As great as they were and as awesome as they were, they, don't, they can't know us or acknowledge us because they are passed away. They are gone. He's saying, either way, he's saying, but you, O Lord, our, are our father. You are our redeemer from of old is your name. That is your character by your character and nature. You're our father and you are our redeemer. You alone are the source of our help and our hope. And then he moves from just being a lament to actually issuing his complaint. God, here's what Isaiah is saying. Here's what I think the problem is. Oh Lord, why do you make us this is an interesting, amazing phrase. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? God, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants the tribes of your heritage. So here we've got to meditate and think about what is Isaiah saying here. He's saying, and we get to the, the sort of crux of this passage here. He's saying the problem is that your presence isn't among your people the way it has been in the past. Return. He just says, don't just look down upon us, but return to us. Now, had God ever left his people alone? No. They were still God's covenant people, just as the believers are, Christians are today. But he says, we need you to return in a way that we don't experience you or have you or see you moving in our midst now. And he says, and here's the problem, that we are wandering from your ways and you have caused us. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? So here's the, it's a kind of a complicated picture and we don't have time to really delve deep in this is why this is a meditation. But the picture of a hardening of a heart that is given throughout scripture is, um, it's very complicated, but it really comes down to as we harden our hearts away from God, and become satisfied in things other than him, then he further allows us to harden our hearts even more. He gives us exactly what we ask for and look for. As we 
turn away from him and seek other answers and other things other than him as the answer, our hearts become more and more hardened as he pushes us or allows us to be hardened more and more. See, Isaiah is going to get further in this passage, past where we actually are going to go today. He's going to get further in this passage, and he's going to acknowledge that it's the people's sin that is the problem. The people of God is the people of Israel and Judah is their sin that is the problem. But he's saying, God, we have no way out of our own sin and our own muck and our own problems unless you come down and pull us out unless you come in by your power and soften our hearts, our, our hardened hearts will continue to be hardened by you. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? It seems like Isaiah is saying here that the problem is that God's presence is not among his people the way it has been in the past the way they have read of old, Abraham and Israel, Moses, the great men and women of God, that was Israel's legacy. God was not present among his people now like he had been before. And he says, return, return Lord. That's really the crux of the prayer and what I think should be the crux of our prayer for our church and for the church and for each of us individually to pray, God, return for the sake of your servants. The tribes of your heritage. Hear the wording here in Isaiah's prayer. He's saying, God, return. You are everywhere, God. But he's saying, still, return. We need to experience your presence. We need to see your zeal and your might like we've heard of old. And he says, this is why, this is why we're asking you to return for the sake of your servants. Do you hear that phrase there? He doesn't just say for our sake. He says for the sake of your servants. He's placing the, if you will, an onus back upon God. He's saying, God, you said we were your servants. And yet, yes, I know, God, we are sinning. We are running away from you, but we need you. We can't return to you unless you come and wake us up. Unless you come and soften our hardened hearts, we have no hope to return to you. Return to your people because you said we were your people. I think that should be our prayer. God, you said we would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You said that the people from the outside would look in and they would see our stark love for one another and they would know that we are your disciples. God, you said that we would, that we would proclaim the gospel and we would make disciples. God, you said that we would be salt and light in our greater culture around us. And yet now we're asking you, look down upon your service, look down upon your church, Look down upon the tribes, look at that, the tribes of your heritage. There's this picture throughout scripture that God's people is his heritage. God's people is not only his possession, but it's what is his inheritance. Or if you will, it's sort of like this. The church is to be not just Christ's bride, but the church is to be Christ's inheritance from the Father. Can you picture that? 
The church in our broken and sinful state is still supposed to be glorious and beautiful enough that he returns for a bride that is spotless and without blemish and that we are his inheritance. We're made to be so not by our actions, but by Christ's work on our behalf. But we should be exhibiting Christ's powerful work in his presence among the earth. God calls his believers in the New Testament as living temples or tabernacles together who are carriers of God's presence into our everyday lives. And collectively, he calls the church God's temple who are being assembled by each believer being built together as living stones, as a living habitation of God's presence in a world that is dark and far away from him. Your, pe- your holy people held possession for a little while, he says. The picture here is God's people held the, the temple mount and the, had the temple where God's presence dwelt and had the land that God had given as his possession for a little while. Only it was supposed to be his perpetual possession, the people's perpetual possession where God's presence would dwell and he would bless his people for the sake of the whole world forever and ever, but they only held it for a little while. He says, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. It seems like the, God, it doesn't seem like your side is winning is what he's saying. Then he says this, which I think is an incredibly sad sentence. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. You know what he's saying? He's saying that for us as Christians, he said we have become, we've begun to look like those who aren't believers. You know what he's saying? We've become, we've begun to look like the world around us. We look for answers in the same place the world looks for them, political answers cultural answers, methodological answers. That's where the world looks for answers. We begin to look in our character like the world around us. Christians, God's people are no more holy or no more righteous or no more loving or no more sacrificing in their lifestyle than those who are around us. Then he says this. Here's the request. Oh, I think that's the marker of a desperate prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would, if you were to rend, is to tear or split apart. Oh, that you would rend, that you would split apart, bring heaven to earth like Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that you would rend, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Not just look, God, we're not asking just to look upon us. We're asking you to look upon us so that you would come. Look upon the state of my life. Look upon the state that we are in as your church and come down. Don't just look down, but come down so that the mountains might quake at your presence. When he says that, he's drawing the the picture of what happened when God's presence came down among his people, whenever he met them in in the wilderness and gave them his law on the mountain. 
The mountains might quake at your presence. He's asking for what's called here is a theological term. It's called a theophany. It's not really important, the term, but what he's saying is he's asking for God's presence to come down among his people. That's what a theophany is. God, come down and bring your presence among your people as you have promised, as you said that you would. As when fire, and this is what it looks like when God's presence comes down, as when fire kindles brushwood. My uh, Christmas tree has been up for over a month now, or about a month now. And, uh, you know, I had great hopes at the beginning of the season. It would be like, you know, green and healthy and keep, you know, drinking water through the whole season. And, you know, those hopes are long past now. It's, uh, it's pretty brittle, pretty dry. You ever seen a, a Christmas tree go up in fire? It's really scary. It goes up fast and hot we used to burn them after Christmas. We'd take them out and we'd, I'd take out my Christmas tree outside and I'd throw a match in it. You didn't have to, you didn't have to work anything. You didn't have to put any lighter fluid. Like you just touch a match to it and it would go up, like almost instantly combust and the flames would go like almost as high as the ceiling from one Christmas tree. He says, when God comes down, as, it's like when fire kindles brushwood. And then that fire causes water to boil. He says, we want you to come down so that, so that to make your name, your name known to your adversaries. God, we want the world to see your greatness. This sounds a lot like the prayer of the early, uh, early believers in Acts 4 when they said, God, you look around, you see what your adversaries are saying, what they have done, the threat they are po- posing against your church now, we pray that you would come, pour out your spirit and show them that the nations might tremble at your presence, he says. Like when you did awesome things that we did not look for. He's now remembering God's past faithfulness. Like when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. You've done this before, God. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. God, we know that you are the one and only true God. Salvation only lies in you. We know that Jesus Christ alone is your son and he is the, there is no salvation outside of him. There's no God beside you and we want the world to see that God working in his zeal and in his might on and through your people. No, I has seen a God besides you. And this is the thing I think wants to, to sit on as we finish today, this meditation, as we head into 2021. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who what? Who wait for him. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And that brings us to the crux of this meditation. The crux of the meditation is this. Will we together as a church diagnose the problem correctly? 
We want a building, but a building's not going to answer any of our problems. We want COVID to be over, but COVID's not going to answer the problem of powerlessness among our church. We want people to be saved, but it's not going to happen. Even if we just, if we guilt you guys into sharing your faith once a day, God will work through that because he works through Balaam's donkey, but that is not what we are going for. Will we diagnose the problem as we need God to come and to move? We need his presence. We need him to look down and we need him to rend the heavens and come down into our midst. And then if we can even agree that that is the problem and not rush to methodologies and not rush to other answers, not rush to political answers or cultural answers, answers, but then we'll be willing to wait for him and say, God, we're going to make this prayer the daily prayer of our lives. We're going to work this deep down into our hearts and souls. Maybe I don't even understand. Maybe this is all fresh and new to me and I don't really feel the importance or the, the crux of this. I don't feel the weight of this. I think everything's okay. And we get on the other side of COVID. Things are going to be okay. Let this sit on you and become to you until you see that the problem is that God's zeal and his might is not moving the way that we want and need it to move. Are we willing to sit in the problem that we see till we see our own sin and our hardening of our own hearts that has turned us away from him. We ask him, we beg him, God, don't let me harden my heart any longer. Lord, rend the heavens so that I may rend my garments in, in repentance. Are we willing to wait on the Lord? And sit in it. Sit in your own personal dissatisfaction. Sit there until it becomes a complaint and a lament and a prayer of desperation that we together pray, Lord, we're in the heavens and come down. And we'll wait. Doesn't mean, waiting doesn't mean doing nothing, but it means we're not going to throw other answers at the problem when, if that's the true problem. Lord, we're in the heavens, we pray, and it come down, and we will wait, we will wait, and we will wait, because we know that you move and you act for those who wait for you. This is our prayer for 2021. And here's what gives us confidence in it. We know that we have confidence to ask for God to rend the heavens and come down because he already did it. Not only has he done it over and over again throughout history, but he did it once for all through Christ, the, the coming, the incarnation that we just celebrated at Christmas. God rent the heavens and came down into our own mess in our darkness and became man. And that man lived a life that was perfect, and died a death on our behalf. And that God, man, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of the Father even now. You know what he says he's doing? He's making intercession for his people. And that's what this prayer is, is a prayer of intercession. So we are joining our weak and distracted prayer of intercession with Christ's ever-present and strong interceding for us before the Father. 
And so as we open the communion this morning, as Dale and I offer to you the, the body and the blood of Christ, what we invite you to come and do is, if you're a believer in Christ, come, and as Dale said, you come from the outside, and we'll, we'll drop it in your hands, the cup that has the wafer and the juice in it. Uh, you tear the top film off and take the wafer, and the next film will take the, the juice. As you do so, let that remind you of what Christ has done, that God has rent the heavens and come down. And because of that, we can have confidence in praying that he would come and he would do so in us and through us, his church today, so that the world would see how great and glorious and holy our God is. I'm gonna pray, the van's gonna come up, we're gonna open the communion, our last communion, as Dale said, of 2020. Father, we have lots of little problems, lots of little issues. Some are not so little, they're really big in our own lives and big in this country and big in the world. Uh, but God, there is no problem that is greater than a people, your people who do not exhibit and showcase your zeal and your might. God, we ask that you would look down upon us God, we ask that you would rend the heavens and come down so the world would see and know your glory and your beauty and you would alone get the credit for it. God, give us the ability to agree and to pray and to wait. God, may there be much rejoicing when we see you move. For we know that you will, that you will. In Christ's name we pray, amen.